So if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Blake. I'm one of your pastors here at the Refuge Church, and, uh, and it's my joy to be able to continue our, our walk through Acts. Um, by the way, if you don't have a paper copy of the Bible, uh, go ahead and raise your hand up real high, and one of our blue shirts will get one in your hands this morning. So even if you forgot one at home and you need to borrow one, that's cool. If you don't have one, take it with you and take that one home, and that can be your new Bible. Let that be our, our gift to you. So we have one right over here. Uh, so yeah, if you need a paper copy of the Bible, uh, just raise your hand up high. We'll get one in your hands. So if you are new to the refuge, and I know we have a few guests here this morning, um, th- what you need to know is that what we typically do here, the main diet of our preaching here at Refuge, is we pick a book of the Bible and we just preach through it until we're done. Okay, so we're in chapter five of, a cha- of Acts. So if you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to chapter five, uh, but we are going to uh, we're going to continue walking through verse by verse through the book of Acts until we finish all 28 chapters sometime in the year 2030. So uh, we're looking forward to, to doing that. But that's what we did. We did it with Ephesians. We did it with the Minor Prophets, Romans, Genesis. That's what we do here. And the reason we do it this way is because we believe that our job as preachers isn't to give you our opinion about stuff. Okay? That's not our job. Our job is to simply do this. Our job is to show you what God has already given us in his word. That's, all, that's, that's our job. Our job is to simply teach the scriptures to you because God said it best, right? And this morning, in Acts is, is a really cool way because a lot of Acts of what we're seeing is a narrative, a story about the birth of the church shortly after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension into heaven. And so today, uh, we get to hear these stories. And actually, today is a, is a, is a bit of a longer story that we're going to get to read it and, and just see this amazing things that the Lord was doing. So uh, for those, who in here is, uh, is an audiobook listener? Anyone? Anyone love audiobooks in the car? I switched over to audiobooks. I finished The Hobbit. I'm working on Fellowship of the Ring right now. So, so I love just listening to these things. Today, this passage that we're going to be reading in, in chapter 5 is a great audiobook story of what we see in early church. And what, so what we're going to do today is a lot of it is just us going to be reading the story. And my job is I'm going to be trying to pull out, try to highlight some of the really cool things that if you're not paying attention, you might just read right over. But today we're going to get, again, we're going to see God already gave us the amazing story. I mean, this is, this is just as good as something you would read in Tolkien, right? This is amazing stuff that we're reading. And uh, so I want to just try to give it a little bit of color to, to, so we don't miss the amazing things that God has already given us in his word. So, so to kind of catch us up where we are, again, we've been walking through all of the chapter, uh, through one, chapters one through four. I want to catch us up to where we've been as we dive into where we find ourselves in chapter five. So, uh, so as you saw um, in, in the beginning of chapter four, it said that all the, the church was living together and they had, quote, all things in common. And what it showed, it showed this amazing picture of gospel community, gospel-rich community. It, showed, it said that they were selling their possessions and giving to any as they had need. It said that they were, they, there was not a need unmet among these people. There, there was healing of the sick. There was caring for one another. They were sharing their homes with one another. It was an amazing picture of gospel-rich community. And... Um, and actually, that's one of the reasons we here at Refuge also try to emulate that through our gospel community groups. We try to, try to show a picture of what it looks like here on earth to give a foretaste of heaven, of gospel-rich community, trying to show people what it looks like to, to love Christ. Because remember, what, what, what did Jesus tell us in John chapter 13, that a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So just like Jesus was telling them, that is exactly what we see in early Acts. But I'm sure as you know, anytime you get a group of people together, there's going to be some things that come up, right? There's going to be some issues that arise whenever you get people together. So what they say, church would be so much easier if it weren't for all the people, right? 
So yeah, so we know that anytime you get a group of people together, something's going to happen. And that's exactly what we saw there at the end of chapter 4 with Ananias and Sapphira. So they too were also selling some of their land and bringing the proceeds to the church to be able to care for them. But it says what they did is they conspired in their hearts to conceal some of those proceeds and pass it off as if it's the whole thing. So they were lying to the church. And uh, what God ended up doing is he ended up killing both of them. Both of them ended up dying because of this deception that the scriptures say they had against not the church, but the Holy Spirit himself. And uh, it's actually one of, the, one of the coolest phrases in there because, you know, uh, Ananias drops dead, right? And then uh, Sapphira didn't know what was going on. It says three hours later, she came back. She says, what's going on? And they say, you hear those footsteps out the doors? Those are the footsteps that buried your husband and they're here to get you now. And then she drops dead. Like, it's, it, it's crazy stuff that we're reading. And we don't do that to make light of someone's death, but we do that to show the power of, the, of what God is doing in this church. And that's exactly what we saw happen. It said that the entire church was filled with fear of the Lord and what was going on. It was made very clear to them that they are to approach what they're doing with severe reverence and humility. And that's exactly where we pick up here in chapter 5. Uh, in, um, in chapter 5. So, um, so we're going to turn, we're going to pick up in verse 12. So now many signs and wonder were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. So, so for those of you who, who grow up reading the Bible, I hope that your familiar, familiarity with the Bible hasn't robbed you of some of just the amazing little nuggets that you see in there. So like, so like one, one thing, for example, is have you ever like actually look, gone and looked up what some of these places actually looked like? So like it says they're all hanging out in Solomon's portico, right? So in Solomon's portico, does, does anyone know what that actually looked like? So, so what I want you to do this morning, again, just because I don't want you to be robbed of the, of the cool little nuggets that we have through all of this, is what we're going to do is I'm going to show you a picture of what this probably looked like. It's actually based on a painting back in the 1800s that is very close to what it, the descriptions of it looked like and even what oh, they found archaeologically. And what this was, Solomon's Portico was a, uh, was a common place uh, where the early church was hanging out. It's where, a lot of, it's where Jesus often did a lot of his ministry when he was in Jerusalem. It was right outside the eastern wall of the temple. And you could see it, was, uh, it had uh, these two rows of columns and, and this roof up above and where they would often be teaching the early church and, uh, after Jesus himself was teaching in this very spot. So what I want you to do, we're going to all do this together. You have to participate, no options, is I want you to look, take in this picture for about five seconds. And then what we're going to do is we're going to put ourselves into, into this among these people, okay? So, so soak it in for about five seconds. Okay, now what I want you to do, close your eyes, and I want you to picture yourself among these people. Feel the breeze flowing through that portico, around those columns, rustling your clothes. Hear the footsteps of the passers-by behind you. Imagine looking up those, those tall pillars to the roof above you. And as you're, as you're viewing the roof, you hear the voices of the apostles, Peter and John, echoing against the stone wall behind them. Now imagine looking over to, to Peter and John and not just hearing their voices, but also witnessing with your own eyes miraculous signs and wonders in front of you, literally in front of you, these amazing things you cannot explain other than the power of God. Fill signs and wonders that fill your heart with amazement and awe of the power of God. What an exciting place this must have been. What an exciting thing this must have been to be a part of. 
All right, you can stop humoring me. You can open your eyes now. But this is, what, this is the, the exercise that I want us to do throughout our time this morning as we're reading through this uh, chapter 5 of Acts. Is I want you to continually put yourself in this place. What would it have been like for me to actually witness these things in front of me? Because sometimes when we're reading the Bible, when we hear about signs and wonders, it's like, oh, cool, you know, that happened. If you saw this, you would be losing your mind. You would not shut up about it. You would be, you, everyone would be tired of hearing your story about how you saw the signs and wonders of Jesus and the apostles that one time in Solomon's Portico, right? You would not be able to stop talking about it. So I want to make sure that we are, are capturing the amazement of what was happening in front of all these guys. So, so as we continue, continue to do that with me. So we're going to continue in verse 13. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Now, the way that this is worded in English is actually kind of confusing, but what I want you to know is when it's talking about none of the rest of them, what they're talking about isn't the church. It's talking about the people outside the church, the people that were probably those passers-by seeing them in, the, in Solomon's portico. What it says is they did not want to dare to join them, and the reason for that is they probably didn't want to be associated what was, with what was widely considered a rebellion against the Jewish state. They didn't want to be, okay, I'm not with those guys. Those, those are the rebels. Those are the guys that are probably going to get kicked out of the temple. I'm not with them, okay? Because remember, if you, if you were kicked out of the temple, that means you probably lost all sense of community. It probably meant you lost customers for your trade. It had a very real impact on what would happen to your life if you were somehow associated with this group of rebels. But what does it say? It says the people still held them in high esteem. Even from afar, they couldn't deny that something was happening within Solomon's portico with this group of people. Even from afar, they knew that something was going on that they just cannot explain. And because of this, in verse 14 we see, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. So the power, the people, the people saw the power of God being demonstrated first through the death of Ananias and Sapphira right there in front of them because of their conspiracy against the, uh, against the Spirit. And now they see through the signs and wonders of the, uh, the apostles continue to build this momentum that we've been seeing grow and grow and grow through the first five books of Acts. And it's here that we get a glimpse of what some of these signs and wonders were. Healing. Actual healing. They carried the sick out in the streets so that they might be healed. Whether by the apostles directly praying over them and putting hands on them, we, we read in other places, or by merely coming close enough to Peter's shadow to fall on them. Now, y'all caught that, right? That they, were, they were putting them out so that Peter's shadow might fall on them. Did, did that catch anyone else? Is a little weird, right? It's a little strange, right? That, that might happen. So now, just so you know that, that this isn't without precedent, I want, you, I want you all to remember something that happened back in Mark. We read this. And wherever Jesus came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored them that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So we know that in their mind that, that they just need to be around this power. They just need to get near it. And apparently it works because they kept doing it a lot. They kept bringing people out to, the, uh, out to all these places and they, and they were being healed left and right. And another thing you should know is that in this culture, there was something weird about shadows, how it was kind of like an extension of your spirit or your soul somehow. So in, you know, in their superstitious mind, they're like, okay, if I, can't get, if I can't have him touch me, maybe at least his shadow, his magic shadow will fall over me and that, that'll heal me. And apparently the gods 
uh, God redeemed even a superstition of that time and allowed that to heal people for the amazement and glorification of God. Amen? How amazing is that? That God even uses the silly things we have in our minds to still continue to carry out his purpose. So, again, we must notice, what did all of these signs and wonders produce? And it says, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. These signs and wonders pointed people to saving faith in Jesus. And there's no sign of the momentous growth slowing down. I mean, how exciting is that? But one thing that, one question that came to mind for me is one thing that I think we need to address, especially in today's climate in the American church, is what did the apostles do with this newfound celebrity status? There's no shortage of celebrity pastors out there, celebrity healers, you know, all these different people that you see out there. What did the apostles do with this celebrity status? I mean, look at in verse 14. It says, more and more people were added to Peter's followers, right? Is that what it says? More and more people were added to the apostles' disciples. Is that what it says? More and more, their coffers were full of money because they sent them little prayer rags. Is that what it says? What does it say? More and more believers were added to the Lord. More and more people were added to the Lord. Be very, very suspicious of anyone who uses supposed gifts of the Spirit to bring fame to themselves. You don't have to look very far to find them. Be very suspicious of them. There are many charlatans then, there are many charlatans now that pervert the scriptures and they prey on people's desperation to gain fame and therefore money. Be very aware of them. But you have to ask, so how can I tell the difference? It's very clear. The purpose of the gifts of the Spirit, whether today or back then, is to bring glory, honor, and awe to God. That is the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit. And this seems to be the exact case now that the wording is spreading across the geography even. The apostles use this attention being placed on them to point their audience to the resurrection of Jesus and the salvation found only in him. Growing the church, in this case, more than ever. There's already been thousands added that we read. More than ever. That's incredible. So what happens to momentous growth? It spreads. Look look with me in verse 16. The people also gathered from the towns of Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. The apostles are healing, are healing people left and right. And th- th- to this point, a lot of their ministry, most of their ministry has only been in Jerusalem. But you can see that the word of, their, of the, what's going on is pushing past the walls of Jerusalem to the cities around them. And it says that they're even starting to bring people to the apostles so that they also can be healed. And it says that, um, that they healed most of them, right? What? Oh, all of them. Is that, yeah, all of them. It says he healed all of them. How amazing is that? Again, would it, would it be amazing if one out of 100 got healed? 100%. That'd be amazing. One out of 10? That'd be crazy. All of them got healed. All of the people that came out from the woodwork, out of these other cities, all of them got healed. What an amazing show of the power of God through these apostles. The power of God was on display for all to see. So again, I want you to put yourself in this place. Imagine yourself following the apostles around, seeing the lame stand up and walk. Maybe a guy that you've known all your life. Oh yeah, that's the guy that's always begging there on on the street. He's walking now. Witnessing the blind see 
for the first time. Watching injuries get healed in front of you. Hearing the mute speak for the first time. And even seeing, as what it says, unclean spirits or demons being cast out of people. Imagine following the apostles and seeing this happen right in front of you. How incredible the power of God is being poured out to the people around this early church. However, this garnered the attention not just of the crowds, but of some other people. Look with me in verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and, they, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So you're probably thinking, am I taking crazy pills, or am I having deja vu? I think we already read this, right? This, this, this already happened, did it not? You're not crazy. You're not, well, you might be, but not because of the story, okay? Um, so but back a few weeks ago, you read that these guys were already arrested and thrown in jail. They were thrown in the temple jail, not in the big big jail, the public jail like this time, but, um, but you're not wrong. This has already happened to them. And, and you might want to know that, that uh, right after Peter and John healed the guy that, was, that um, was lame, that he was leaping with them into the temple, that's when they got busted by these guys the first time. By the way, it's the same guys. It says the, ca- the captain of the temple guard or, and uh, even the high priest, it's the same people that arrested them the first time. It's the same guys. But, no, but I want you to notice why were they uh, being arrested. Why were they confronting them again this time? They were straight up jealous. Was it because they were defaming the name of God? Was it because they were skimping on their taxes? Was it because they were, uh, so, you know, causing a ruckus or anything like that, you know, improperly within the temple? No. They were straight up jealous. That's why they were arrested. Back when we saw the apostles first run into these guys, we learned that the Sadducees, as opposed to the Pharisees that we saw throughout, uh, all, throughout all the Gospels, they didn't believe in the supernatural. That's one of the main differences between Sadducees and Pharisees. Sadducees typically didn't believe in supernatural stuff. Their focus wasn't spiritual, it was political. See, and the apostles' popularity was a threat to their political power. The first time they get arrested, and again, it's a threat to their political power. And this time they're put not in temple jail, but in actual public prison. And just like last time, it was too late in the day for the council to try them on the same day, so they had to stay overnight. And that's where we get to see now a completely different outpouring of the Spirit. Check it out. Look with me in verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Again, put yourself in that cell. You're sitting there at night. What's going on? You hear the door start rattling. It opens up. Is that a guard giving us food? Nope, it's an angel opening the door for us. Like, that's incredible, y'all. Like, imagine what it, was, what it must have been like that way. Oh, are the, are the guards gonna come in and find us? Nope, I guess they're asleep or something, or they're frozen in time. I don't know what they did, didn't say what they did, but uh, later on, we see something similar happen, and the guards are actually put to sleep, and they woke up later and didn't know what happened. So uh, it's amazing just seeing what happened here in front of them. God sends an angel to bust them out of jail. I mean, this is... This is incredible. This is something we would see on the news if it happened today, right? This is incredible. So again, let's just stop for a moment. I want, I want you to see that, uh, I, want, I want to acknowledge an amazing theme that we're seeing all throughout Acts that we're even seeing right now. That God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Amen? God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to do it. He... He's the creator of the universe. He's the knowing, all-powerful. But here's one of the coolest parts. 
God is also near. He's involved. We are not deists where we believe that God created it, spun the top, and then just kind of walked off and, you know, didn't care what happens anymore. God is involved. So I want you to be encouraged that the God that created you knows who you are, where you are, what you need, and where you're going. And he is able to deliver anything to you that he chooses. It's not hard for him. So no matter what you're going through, no matter how horrible of a situation you feel like you're in right now, I want you to be encouraged that God has not abandoned you. He is able to intervene. Even if that means sending an angel to secretly bust you out of a jail cell, that's what he'll do if that's what he wants you to do. Amen? How amazing is it that this is the God that we serve? All right, let me, let's get back to our passage. Look with me in verse, uh, in verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So the angel busts them out, and then he gives them instructions. What does he tell them to do? Go into hiding so they don't find you, right? Is that what he says? What does he tell them to do? Get back to work. Go, go back to the temple. Go, where they found you to arrest you the first time, go back there and keep doing the thing that you were doing to get you arrested. That's what the angel is telling them to do. Go get back to work. And much like how this encourages us today, how much more encouraging this must have been for the apostles in the early church at that time. They probably felt like nothing can stop us now. Nothing can stop the gospel of Jesus Christ from spreading, no matter how strong the opposition. Imagine how encouraged and emboldened you would be if you were in their shoes. And they must have felt that way because it's true. Nothing can stop the gospel of Jesus Christ from going wherever God chooses to push it. Amen? This is this gospel that we preach. This is the God that we serve. A God that can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to do it. And we today, just like the apostles then, get to be a part of this work. How amazing is it that we get to be a part of this incredible work that we're reading here in scriptures that we see happening all around us today if you have eyes to see it. So what did they do? And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So they got back to work. They did exactly what that angel told them to do, preaching the resurrection of Jesus and salvation found only in him. So now we get to, I honestly, this is the part, I think this is the really funny part of the story. So, so and, and just know that, yes, you might be surprised. Uh, yes, you know that there are, there's poetry and there's prose and there's wisdom in the Bible. There's humor too. So the Bible is also funny a lot of times, and this is one of those times. So, so, um, so read this with me. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But then the officers came. They did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened, they found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what, would, what this would come to. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and he decided to liberate the apostles right from under the nose of the very, uh, nose of the very guards that were under, uh, guarding their cell outside. They had no idea that they were gone. And neither did the council waiting for them. I mean, again, close your eyes and imagine being in the room of the council. And being, imagine being, seeing the guy that you sent out to retrieve them come back. Not with the apostles. Imagine with, what that would have looked like. And I mean, what would you have done in that guy's shoes? There's, there is no way they're going to believe me. There's no way they're going to believe me. Well, here goes nothing. 
<laughs> well, I couldn't find, they weren't there. I opened the door, they weren't there. I mean, you, I, I sound ridiculous even saying, I imagine how this guy sounded talking to a group of 70 people, right? And it would have been nervous to say that. And their reaction confirms why he should have been nervous. Uh, because it says that they were perplexed, or it could be translated puzzled, or incredibly confused is what it says. So, of course, they were perplexed. Because remember, this was made up of mostly Sadducees who didn't believe in the supernatural. But clearly, something supernatural is happening. So they don't know, they don't know how, to, how to square that in their own theology or lack thereof. Then someone breaks the confused silence. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Snitches get stitches, am I right? God. They were found exactly where they were, where they were when they got thrown in jail the first time. And in the temple teaching about Jesus. That's exactly where they went back to. So they went to go get them, but don't miss this very interesting point here. Then the captain and the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. They didn't grab them and drag them out. Pretty please, can you, come on, can y'all come with me? Come on, let's go. They did, graciously, but they knew that they might be stoned by the people. Remember what we saw back in verse 13, that uh, they were held in high esteem by all the people. They knew that the people were on their side and they wouldn't, didn't want to cause anything that might put them in a bad light. Remember, the thing that they were most worried about was political power. So if they were to oppose these people who are held in high esteem, that's going to that's be a rub against my power and my influence with these people. So they quietly brought them in and the, the um, apostles graciously came along with them. They came willingly, is what it says. We continue reading in verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Notice they didn't even want to say the name of Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So remember, this council is the same council we saw before, the Sanhedrin. We saw these guys a few weeks ago. This is the 70-plus member crew of, who are the equivalent of the Jewish Supreme Court that they're being brought in front of. So again, place yourself in Peter's shoes. Here, here's what it might have looked like. You in the middle, and they, would, they were literally surrounding you as they're grilling you and shouting at you and trying to get you to confess whatever they're trying to do. Put yourself in those shoes. And Peter surely knows, just like last time, that whatever he answers could have deadly consequences for them. Because remember, this is the same group that sent Jesus to his crucifixion. So no, so Jesus, uh, Peter and the apostles would have been keenly aware of what is at stake as they're answering these questions. So Peter backed down, right, and gave a soft answer so that he wouldn't get in trouble. Is that right? But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. He got right to the point with a bold answer right off the bat. And remember, he's saying this with all of them surrounding him in this intimidating fashion. We must obey God rather than men. This is a different thing now. Peter isn't just ignoring their command. He's informing the Sanhedrin, the most powerful religious group in the region, the group that killed his Savior, that he has no intention of following their order to stop and will continue to preach Jesus crucified. Then his boldness continues. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. 
God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. I love this part. So, so again, humor me for a second and put yourself in that room. In my mind, this is kind of what, if I'm going to paraphrase what he's saying, this is how it sounds to me. You think we're trying, this is Peter saying, you think we're trying to blame Jesus' blood on you? Well, you're absolutely right because you're the ones who killed him. Oh, and you don't want me to talk about Jesus? So you probably don't want me to talk about how God sent him to pay for your sin and my sin. And you probably wouldn't want me to tell others that God raised him from the dead after you killed him three days later. Is that right? Are those the things you don't want me to talk about? So I shouldn't go back to the temple as soon as I walk out of here and the next day and the next day? Am I understanding you correctly? Not going to happen. That's, 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 in my mind, that's how it sounds. He's speaking to them in boldness. And just like last time, the apostles are using their very trial to demonstrate the very reason they're there in the first place, preaching the resurrection of Jesus. They're weaving the gospel proclamation into their defense. But there's another really cool thing that I want to point out. It's one of those things that it's just cool, and I just want you all to know it, that it's there, okay? So it's... <laughs> But what's really amazing is I want you to notice this one very important word. Where'd it go? What's that word there? Savior. Reason it's important, this is the first time outside of the Gospels that someone calls Jesus Savior. This was a hallmark moment in the history of your church, of our church. This is the first time that someone calls Jesus Savior. And is he saying it in a private room amongst friends? Is he calling Jesus Savior as he's walking down the road in private with somebody else? Is he calling Jesus Savior in a letter that he's sending to a church for the first time? No, he's calling Jesus boldly and unapologetically Savior amongst the very people that killed him. How incredible is that? reminding them that he is the savior they don't think they need. So how do you think this message was received by the Sanhedrin? They're like, oh, good point. Okay, you can go. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. We get a glimpse into their hearts. They're threatened, just like they were with Jesus, that this growth is infringing upon their power. But now the plot thickens. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the man outside for a while. Drama. It's happening. It's, it's, it's heating up in there. This, and this isn't just some random dude who's standing up, right? This is a guy that when he speaks, people listen. This is, a, this is someone that we can even read in, in other texts that people, he was known at that time for being a very pious man and very wise in what he was saying. But he was a Pharisee, not a Sadducee. So it makes sense that, that, uh, that he's bringing in the spiritual angle of this because for him, it's not only political, it's also theological because unlike the Sadducees, he does believe in the supernatural. So again, so just imagine as soon as he stood up and started to speak, everyone else turns their head to look in hushed anticipation to listen. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. Remember, they want to kill them. 
For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So Gamaliel tells the Sanhedrin to be careful not to overreact. He points to two examples, Thutis and Judas the Galilean. Both of these guys claimed to be Messiah. That wasn't uncommon. Jesus wasn't the only guy at this time claiming to be the Messiah that the Jews were looking for. So these guys, too, claimed to be prophets, claimed to be Messiah, and, and led a group of people uh, to, to follow them. But ultimately, they failed, as, uh, as history would prove. And after proving to be frauds, their followers scattered, and their movements died along with them. And then Gamaliel uh, continues in verse 38. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan, is, uh, or, this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So again, remember, he's also theological. He's bringing in this element that the Sadducees weren't even thinking about. If this is yet just another flash in the pan movement like the others before it, it'll fizzle out on its own. So just leave them alone. From a strategy standpoint, it's a pretty smart plan because again, they're not having to go up against people who are very, very popular. So they won't be looking bad light. As far as they're concerned, Jesus is still dead in the grave. So there's no reason to believe that they're going to be any different from Thutis or, or, any, or Judas the Galilean or any other movement before them. But Gamaliel's follow, following statement in verse 39 is also smart. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. In other words, there's nothing for the Sanhedrin to do. The Jesus movement will either fizzle out on its own or it will be an unstoppable force of God himself. Let me ask y'all, we're 2,000 years later. How did it shake out? It's the latter, yes. It's an unstoppable move of God himself. Yes, the Sanhedrin were hedging their bets by leaving the apostles alone, but they made a critical error in their strategy. They were operating on the assumption that Jesus was still in the grave. Is he? Is Jesus still in the grave? No, Jesus is alive. He was just as alive then as he is alive now. They made the error of making their decisions based on the false assumption that Jesus is in the grave, but Jesus is alive. Amen? The God that we worship raised Jesus from the dead three days later to sit at his right hand on the throne and is reigning to this day. Over 500 people witnessed him alive after his resurrection and saw him ascend into heaven. Jesus is the Messiah that was promised by the Old Testament prophets and his followers. And his followers are still here in this room right now. This is not just a flash in the pan movement that fizzled out after a few years. Jesus' church endures. So what did they do? Well, they took his advice. They were persuaded uh, just, in the case, just in case this was God. And I'm sure that some of them were still freaked out because don't forget where they just found the apostles. Not in jail. <laughs> Remember, they, were, they probably still had that in the back of their mind. Something weird's going on here. So just in case, maybe, maybe that's why they're a little a more, more easily persuaded. There was clearly something otherworldly going on with these guys. But the apostles didn't get out scot-free. And then they, when they had called the apostles, they beat them. 
and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. So they did let them go, but not before beating them. Now, don't let that word beating seem soft at all. The, the word can also be translated as flogged. And this was not just an easy rough up and then send them out. This was a typical punishment that the Sanhedrin would give out to those who break Jewish law. It was called 40 lashes less one. The apostles knew it was a possibility because they've probably seen it administered before since they lived in that culture. The offender would, would be tied up with their hands restrained either around a post or hung up high like this with their back exposed to the whips. And then they would be whipped 39 times. It would often separate the flesh where you could see bone. This isn't unlike the flogging that Jesus received before he was put on the cross. Many people died from this punishment. This was no easy rough up. They were beaten severely before they were sent. But the apostles, by the grace of God, they survived and endured the punishment. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were severely beaten, yet they rejoice. Why would they possibly do that? What possible reason do they have to rejoice as their tattered flesh is still sore and bleeding through the shirt on their back? As counterintuitive as it sounds, rejoicing in the face of suffering is one of the pillars of the Christian life. Apostle Paul in Romans puts it this way. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Uh, Apostle Peter puts it this way. In, in, your, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been given by, uh, grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perhaps though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that this inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And Jesus himself told his followers to expect persecution. In Matthew chapter 5, we read this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Although our passage doesn't explicitly say this, don't you think that Peter and the others probably remembered those words of Jesus as they were being beaten? I bet they did. The beating, meant as a deterrent, served as a reinforcement for these men that they were being faithful to that which would they have been called, to preach Jesus to anyone who will hear, even in the face of opposition. And they walked out of there, bloodied, backs and all, and got back to work. And every day in the temple and from the house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is who? Jesus. 
They really meant what they said in verse 29 by obeying God, flatly ignoring the repeated commands of the Sanhedrin. They did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah the Jewish people have been waiting for. This isn't just some failed messianic movement like the others Gamaliel mentioned in that council. Jesus is for real. So the question is, with this, with this story, this amazing picture that we see in Acts of the early church and the persecution they endured and the boldness they did in the face of that persecution, what are we to do here in this room in 2023 with this, uh, with this story of bravery and, and humor even? There's two things that I don't want you to forget as you leave here from this. God can do anything. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. We worship the God of the universe, the creator of all things. No matter how deep your valley may seem, remember that God is with you. Relationship issues, financial troubles, wayward children, addictions, sickness, thrown in jail by the Jewish Supreme Court, whatever it is, it's not too big for God. Go to him in prayer and know that you are able to make your request known to him to a God who is listening and is able to do whatever he wants to do. Also remember that he has already demonstrated his love for you, that he is listening, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's already demonstrated that he loves us through Jesus' death on the cross. God can do anything, even save us from our own sin even restore our relationship with him, allowing us to commune with him forever. How great is our God? And finally, the second thing I want you to remember, we must obey God rather than men. You might be thinking, I have no idea what he wants me to do, though. I, I want to obey him. I don't, know, I don't know what to do, though. That's not an uncommon question, to which I would ask, have you spent time with him in prayer and ask him to reveal that to you? Are you asking for that wisdom to a God that says that he will give it when you ask it? Have you spent time with him in the scriptures? I can't tell you the number of people that have come to me saying, I don't know the will of God, but then when we really dig down, dig down, they barely spend any time in the scriptures. And I don't say that to heap condemnation on you. I'm telling you, this is a rich treasure trove that is just sitting there in your house or on your desk. Open it and see what you can learn about the God of the universe who died for you. And when you're going to him in prayer, listen. What is it that God's asking you to do? When you're reading the scriptures, pay attention. What is it God is asking you to do? And as the Holy Spirit reveals to you the will of the Father, be obedient to do it. Or maybe the reason you don't know what he wants you to do is because you simply don't care. Maybe you haven't even thought about it. Maybe you're not a Christian. That's, if, you, if you're not a Christian, why would you care what God thinks? And some of you, you do call yourself Christian, but still you don't know the will of the Father because you're so busy focused on your own will than the will of your Father. Don't make the same mistake that the Sanhedrin made, whether you're a Christian or not. Don't make the mistake of assuming that Jesus is still in the grave because he is not. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf for those of us who call him who call him Christ. So you may, not, you may say that you believe that, and assume, but 
we look, again, if we look at your life, it might show operationally you don't. It makes no difference in your life. So if that's your case, if, if the case is that you're not a Christian or the case is maybe you've been a Christian in name only, I'll tell you what your first act of obedience is. It's repentance. Forgive me, Lord, for pursuing my own will more than yours, placing in my heart a yearning for my will more than, place in my heart a yearning for your will over my will, Lord. That is your first act of repentance. In fact, that, that's, a, that's the first act of obedience for any Christian is repentance. So for some in this room, if you're not a Christian, you're, what your first act of obedience could be is admitting that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior and confessing with your mouth that he is Lord and believing with everything that you are that God raised him from the dead. That might be your first act of obedience today. And if it is, praise God. We have much to celebrate today. Our God can do anything, and he is a God worth obeying. Just look at what he's done for us in the scriptures. He came down from his throne room in heaven, took on flesh so that he could die the death that we deserve, took our sin upon his shoulders, paying the price for our sin, allowing us to be washed white as snow. And even more, he gave us his righteousness, allowing us to be full heirs as his children. It's amazing. Pray and listen. Read and pay attention and obey the God who can do anything. Let me pray for us.